Open your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 29, Second Chronicles chapter 9. And the message tonight is entitled, It's in the Heart. I'm sorry, it starts in the heart. It starts in the heart. When we're gone, when our life is over, what will people say about the past that we left behind? A good one or a bad one? Um, he did a lot of good things or she did a lot of good things and they're a good example to follow or they didn't do much in their life. The point is the past is, a, is an important part of what you do today. What you do today is going to make up what they say about your past and what you do today will be the plans that you make for tomorrow. You see, the people in the kings of Judah had a very rich past. And it was filled with a lot of great things that God had done for them, plus his guidance and his instructions. But with every generation that passed, they also had a growing list of disasters that happened when the people forget that their God who cared for them in the past, also cared about them in the present and the future, when they didn't continue in their obedience. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven said, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. But it has everything to do with what we do today. Hezekiah was the only king of Judah who was as faithful to the Lord as David had been. And Hezekiah was one of the few kings of Judah who was always aware of the things that God had done for them in the past and how he was interested, how God was interested in the everyday affairs of life. And the Bible describes Hezekiah as a king who had a close relationship with God. Hezekiah was a reformer. What he was concerned about right now at the moment was obedience, getting back to the basics of God. And all Judah had to do was look around and they would see several reminders of what happens when people disobey God and lack trust in him. So what Hezekiah does, he cleans house. Altars, idols, and pagan temples were destroyed. They were taken down. Even the bronze serpent that Moses had made in the wilderness was destroyed. Why? Because it had stopped pointing people to God and it had become also an idol. King Ahaz, Hezekiah's own father, had nailed the doors to the temple shut in Jerusalem. But Hezekiah, he cleaned out the temple and he reopened the doors for worship. And the Passover was reinstituted as a national holiday and there was revival in Judah. And even though he had a natural tendency to, to take action, you know, with, with problems at the moment, Hezekiah's life doesn't show he had much concern about the future because he didn't put into place many safety measures to preserve the good things that he had done with all the improvements that he made. His successful hard work made him proud and his not so wise decision to show his wealth to the Babylonian delegation got Judah on Babylon's list of nations to conquer. He showed the, you know, he showed the enemy this, all the wealth of the nation. They go, huh. This is a nation we got to come back and defeat. They got a lot of goodies we could take. 
When Isaiah confronted Hezekiah about the foolish thing that he did, showing the wealth of the Babylonian delegation, Hezekiah's answer showed that he, his, he, he, it showed his continuing lacking of thinking ahead. He was thankful that if there were any, any evil consequences, that they would be delayed until after he died. And the lives of three kings who followed him, Manasseh, Ammon, and Josiah, were really influenced by Hezekiah's accomplishments as well as his weaknesses. The past affects your decisions and the things you do today, and then they turn around and affect the future. So again, there are lessons to be learned and errors that we don't want to repeat. So remember that part of the success of your past will depend on what you do with it today and how well you use it to prepare for tomorrow. We left off last week, uh, 2 Chronicles 28, 27. It says that Ahaz died and his son Hezekiah became the next king. So that's where we start off now in chapter 29. So Hezekiah now takes the throne of Judah and he's given a very good opportunity to do some really great things. His father Ahaz, like I said, had brought the nation down upon it along with God's grace, God's wrath. He allowed it to come close. Ahaz allowed it to come close to destruction. But Hezekiah, on the other hand, was young and he was strong. He knew the secret and the source of prosperity. He had the hope that everything might be restored if willpower and hard work was applied at the right time. So he decided that with God's help, he would be able to rise to the occasion and take on and do this great work. And he did. He had what it took to do the job. Let's begin now in chapter 29 with verses 1 through 11. And it reads, Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father or his ancestor David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him. They have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule or the entry room into the temple. They put out the lamps and they have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering, as you see with your eyes. For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel, that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, For the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister to him and burn incense. So Hezekiah in these verses reopens the temple. He had all the necessary preparation in godly training. Even though his father left the faith and his father's example was not to be followed, Hezekiah had some godly influences in his life and probably from his mother Abijah and and who led him to choose to serve the Lord. 
There's, but there's a strange thing here. It's like a, a, a strange contradiction that we often find in bad men. Nobody knows why. But, you know, it's, they want their children to go to church. They want them to learn good morals and get a godly education. But they themselves aren't interested. But whoever taught and trained Hezekiah must have felt blessed later on as they looked, you know, uh, after many years had passed. And they saw how Hezekiah served his people and his country so well. Hezekiah had sensibility. And we can see by what he said to the priests and the Levites in verse 5, verses 5 through 11, that he made more than just common sense. You see, the things that had happened recently really troubled him. You know, really touched his heart. You see, his nation was dishonored and families were broken. The awful displeasure of the Lord, all of these things touched his heart. And he was a man of strong and deep feelings. He also had determination to do what needed to be done. There's reason to believe that the priestly officials weren't as enthusiastic about making things better as Hezekiah was. Because the priests were pretty much behind the scenes kind of guys. And the Levites needed to step it up and they needed to be encouraged. Hey, guys, don't be negligent about the things of God. Hezekiah not only got the ball rolling, but he had a strong determination to get the job done. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says, it's in my heart to make a covenant. Notice in my heart. It starts in the heart. All great works of God start in the heart. Even though his elders were right there in front of him and he'd barely been king for a month. It was pretty clear that that he intended to do what needed to be done. He intended to do what he said. A strong will helps to get rid of indecisiveness and half-heartedness. He also had the wisdom to do the job. Hezekiah showed a lot of wisdom for such a young man. He recognized the right order of how things should be done. He saw what needed to be first, restore the worship of God. He felt the first thing that needed to be done was for the nation to get right with the the God who they had seriously offended. And he perceived that the first thing to be done to reach this great goal was to purify God's defiled house. He got the leaders together. He had a talk with them and he asked them for their help. He got the Levites and the priests together and he had a heart to a heart to heart talk with them. And he asked them, hey, guys, I need your support. And he asked them in a godly and affectionate way. And he says, guys, you were chosen by God. The Levites were chosen by God to serve in the temple. And, and, and they had been kept from doing that because of Ahaz's wickedness. He closed the doors of the temple. But Hezekiah calls them back into service and he reminds them in verse 11, the Lord has chosen you to minister. And you know what? That's a reminder that all of us need to keep in mind. God didn't save us to sit. He saved us to serve. He called us to do something in the kingdom of God. We might not have to deal with a wicked king today, but pressures or responsibilities can, in a sense, paralyze us cause us to be inactive and and ineffective and not do anything. But when you've been given the responsibility to minister, don't neglect your duty. You know, if you're not serving the Lord right now, or you've stopped serving the Lord, you know, 
either by choice or because of circumstances in your life, look for opportunities that God will send you to help you carry on your responsibilities. And then be like the Levites and be ready to move and take action. Hezekiah also understood that revival has to start in our own hearts, in each individual. It's not hanging up a big sign and saying, revival here. You know, it's not getting in special speakers or special music because we're having a revival. It begins in each believer's heart with a renewed love for the Word of God, with a renewed love for worship, and a renewed love for, 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 for prayer and fellowship. When you go back to Acts chapter 2, you see what it took. You see what, what the people did and, and the fellowship they had that, that made a strong church. They fellowshiped, they prayed, they were in one accord, and they were in the church daily. That's what makes a strong church. That kind of a relationship to God. And Hezekiah understood that. It begins in the heart. So he said in verse 5 to the people, notice what he said, sanctify yourselves. The word sanctify means set yourself apart. Only people with the clean hands of a pure heart can cleanse and purify the sanctuary of God. James chapter 4, 8, James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, meaning divided hearts. You know, we can't serve God in the flesh. You know, we can't serve two masters. We have to make up our mind that I'm either going to be all in for God or I'm not. Because there's no middle ground with God. There's no middle of the road with God. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. And here's the interesting thing. You don't have to be against Jesus in order to be against him. And it only takes not being with him to be against him. Nor do you have to actively interfere with God's work in order to be one who scatters. All it takes is not gathering with him. If we want to the, do the best for God, this is what we have to do. First of all, realize the greatness of the work that we have to do. And then be impressed and motivated by it and be honored by it. Because a cold heart isn't going to get the job done, especially with all the obstacles that you'll run into. And we will. And if we have a heart to serve God, Satan's going to come after you like a madman. The cold heart will never be successful. Secondly, it must be a priority to feel that God must be with us in our work. That we need him to get the work done. And the success of doing the work of God is dependent upon him. And we also need uh, any help that is available to us. Remember when God was leading Moses to the promised land? Remember what, he told, what, what, what Moses told God? Or what God told Moses? My presence will, will go with you. And remember what Moses replied to God? If your presence doesn't go with us, don't bring us up from here. Moses knew it was going to take God to get him to his, to his destination. And it all starts with us sanctifying ourselves, setting ourselves apart for the work that we have to do. How? By examining ourselves, by searching our hearts, by a sincere repentance and a return to God. 
by a serious rededication of ourselves to our Lord and to serving Him. And by sincere and believing prayer, cleanse our own heart and be ready to do our part. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you have failed the test of genuine faith. What Paul was saying here, he said, you know, they need to prove that they're believers. Can they prove they're believers? They need to prove it to themselves. Test yourselves, Paul said. In fact, all professing believers need to examine their own hearts to make sure they're actually believers and not pretenders. And then cooperate with those that you serve with. Cooperate with your brothers and sisters as much as we can within our power. And not conceitingly thinking, I don't need their help. I can do this by myself. Nor selfishly wanting to do God's work uh, by ourselves, nor being quarrelsome, making it hard for others to work with us. But gladly and graciously enter into fellowship with our friends and our neighbors. Verses 12 through 19. Then these Levites arose, Mahath, the son of Amasai, and Joel, the son of Azariah, of the sons of the Kohathites, of the sons of Merari, Kish, the son of Abdi, and Azariah, the son of Jehalalil, or, or, uh, of the Gershonites, uh, Joah, the son of Zimmah, and Eden, the son of Joah, of the sons of Elizaphan, Shimri, and, and Jael, of the sons of Asaph, Zechariah and Mataniah, of the sons of Heman, Je, uh, Jehiel and, and Shemai, and of the sons of Jejuthun, Shemaiah and Uziel. And they gathered their brethren, sanctified themselves, and went according to the commandment of the king at the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. Then the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it. And they brought out all the debris, all the rubbish that they found in the temple of the Lord to the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it out and carried it to the brook Kidron. Now they began to sanctify on the first day of the first month. And on the eighth day of the month, they came to the vestibule or again, the uh, entry room to the temple of the Lord. So they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days. And on the 16th day of the first month, they finished. Then they went into King Hezekiah and they said, We have cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offerings with all its articles, and the table of showbread with all its articles. Moreover, all the articles which King Ahaz in his reign had cast aside in his transgression, we have prepared and sanctified, and there they are before the altar of the Lord. The way these Levites received and obeyed the king's orders shows us the way that we should go about our duty. It says that, that, that the king gave the command to the workers that came from the Lord to the king. You see the obedience that followed. King took it and he gave it to the leaders and they followed what the voice of the, the, the king had to say. The point is, is we need to do the Lord's work with the right attitude as these men did. Notice it says here that the men arose in verse 12. The men arose. The word arose means they got to work right away. They went to do what Hezekiah asked them to do. They didn't hem and haw. They didn't think it over. Say, oh, you know, we'll get started in the morning. They started the work right away. It wouldn't be guessing Based on what we read here, 
that we can say, you know what? They accepted their work in a spirit of obedience. Obedience to their king and devotion to their God. And it would be appropriate and it would honor them for what they did. And it's the same spirit that we should go and do any job that we're given. We should realize that our duty to our fellow man, that is to do what's just and right to him, is important. Also to realize our responsibility to God. Because in diligence and faithfulness, we should do everything for him that way. And that's what Paul said, whatever we do, to do it for God heartily. Also, we shouldn't be bothered. Don't be bothered if the work is unpleasant. Serving the Lord isn't always a fun or easy job. The job that the Levites and the priests were given to do was not nice work. But you know what? We're never above the work or below the work. Oh, it's not my job. Oh, wait a minute, I went to Bible school and I graduated. And, you know, I, I, you know this, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm too well trained to, to take out the trash. And yet we see the Levites here in the house of God taking out the rubbish in the sanctuary, in the, in the temple. They had to take out all the debris, all the trash that they found in the temple of the Lord, and they had to carry it out to the brook Kidron, according to verse 16. It couldn't have been a fun job. I mean, taking out the trash, whether a small or a larger, it, it's, it's not a fun job. But they didn't hesitate to do it. And they couldn't have possibly been doing a more important job. You know, when God asks us to do something, it has to be important to Him. And we got to remember that. Because you see, what they were doing was getting rid of a curse and taking away the wrath of their God. And you know, it's a great picture of us building our life in Christ. You know, we got to get rid of the trash and the rubbish in our life, the trash and the rubbish that's in our mind before we can build the holy temple of God. We have to be clean vessels before God's righteousness can be poured into it. And this is what we see here. They didn't hesitate to go take out the rubbish from the, from, from the tabernacle because they knew they were doing an important job. They were getting rid of a curse, taking away the wrath of their God. They weren't just cleaning a building. They were cleaning their own conscience and they were making things right with God. The word cleanse in verse 16 means to make free from blemish. They were making the temple free from blemish. And this word is used almost always in a ritual or spiritual sense. And almost half of the times that it's used in Leviticus, ritual cleaning or cleansing is related to sanctification. We can't be sanctified unless we're cleansed. Again, it means ritual cleaning and it's related to sanctification and it's opposed to the moral filthiness of the Israelites. Objects and people involved in worship of the Lord, like the temple, the furniture in the temple, and the Levites, they needed cleansing because the Lord is a holy God. And we not, cannot come into the presence of holy God in any unrighteousness. 
The ritual outside cleansing of, of people was a symbol of internal purity. The outside cleansing was a, was a sign, a symbol of what was going on inside. Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied about the future cleansing of the people from their sins so that they could, so that they could truly be God's people both inside and out. And this idea of cleansing, it carries all the way into the New Testament. The book of Revelation speaks about the Lamb's bride, the church, in clean linen, which symbolizes the righteous acts of the believers. Nobody could have blessed the owner of that building, obviously the owner being God. Nobody could have blessed God, of, uh, the owner of that building, more than those Levites as they cleared the altar of all of its idolatrous odds and ends. And as they swept the dirt and the dust from the courts of the sanctuary and took out all the, un, all the defiled things that they found. We should never despise any work that the Lord gives us to do, even if it's not the kind of work we like or we've been trained to do. And even if it's unpleasant to us. And we have to keep in mind, in the kingdom of God, there are no specialists. There are no specialists in the service of God. Serving the Lord is serving wherever the need is and whatever the need is. If it's work that's required of us in an emergency, or it's work that just the everyday providence will of God brings our way at that time, or if it's what our Lord asks us to do in order to serve His purpose or to help one of His children, it's honorable work, it's important work, and it should be considered holy in our eyes. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? Remember what he asked the disciples to do after they were finished? Hey guys, go around and pick up the scraps. The leftovers, the fragments. Remember Paul on the island of Malta? He was gathering sticks to light a fire because it was rainy and windy and cold. Remember, Jesus asked his disciple to, to go get a donkey for him. Can you imagine saying, you're asking a disciple to go get a donkey? It was important to Jesus to have that donkey. He asked another disciple one time to go get him a boat. But in all of these incidents, all of these things that Jesus asked of his disciples, we have examples of the truth that all work for the Lord is work that's honorable and it's special. And we see here we're to ask every willing worker to help. Notice the names of those, those people listed in verses, uh, named in verses 12 through 14. Those names listed there might have been people who were the most willing to offer themselves to do the work that needed to be done. And you always have those that say, hey, I'm here, I'll, whatever you need, I'll help. But they didn't plan on doing it by themselves. They asked everybody who joined them in verse 15, and then as a strong, united group, a single-minded group, a, 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 had one thing in common, they tackled the job. In doing God's work, we should use everybody who has a heart to work and a hand to help. Why should we do it? For the sake of the work itself. It's a work of God. We need to do it so that it might get done more quickly and more, to fit, more efficiently. Secondly, for their sake, the people's sake, because they'll be blessed in the work. And then afterward, for our own sake, 
so that we won't be overburdened and then we can do our own work more carefully and more completely. And then we, know, we need to know when to stop and when to go on. We see that here. All of these examples we see here in what's happening. We need to know when to stop and when to go on. When to draw the line and when to cross it. These obedient Levites understood their duty well. In verse 16, notice it said they didn't go into the priest's area. They weren't qualified to do that. Or they weren't called to do that. They didn't go into the priest's area. It says they stopped at the inner part of the house of the Lord. And then we read it was the priests. Okay, that went into the sanctuary of the temple of the Lord to cleanse it. They took out to the temple courtyard all the defiled things that they found. But from there, the Levites carted it all out to the Kidron Valley. They all knew their duty and what they could and couldn't do. At the same time, they went beyond their instruction by preparing and sanctifying the articles that Ahaz had cast aside. And they did that by bringing these before the altar of the Lord. They prepared them and they made them ready for use according to verse 19. And it's a good thing to know when to stop and when to continue on. We also say here in these people to do our, our work quickly and completely. Verse 17 says they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days. Verse 18 says, we have cleansed all the house of the Lord with all of its articles. Do everything that's needed to be done. We are called to do everything that's needed to be done. We're not to leave anything undone because, you know, you might think, well, you know, this is trivial. It's not a big deal. Nobody's going to notice we do it or not, or, or we can do it later or down there. You know, we're to do it all without delay, wasting no time. And doing everything in the time expected of us. This is how we're to do the work of the Lord. We're to do our duty as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're to know that our work will be judged. They went into King Hezekiah in verse 18 and reported that all the work was done. They reported to King Hezekiah, hey, the work was done. Now, we might not be accountable to any earthly master, but we are definitely accountable to a heavenly one. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We will give an account and God's going to judge us one day for everything that we did, good or bad. So we need to work in a way that will be acceptable to him. Verses 20 through 24. Then King Hezekiah rose early, gathered the rulers of the city, and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. Then he commanded the beasts, I'm sorry, then he commanded the priests, <coughs> the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they killed the bulls and the priests and received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Likewise, they killed the rams and sprinkled the blood on the altar. 
They also killed the lambs and sprinkled the blood on the altar. Then they brought out the male goats for the sin offering before the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. And the priests killed them, and they presented their blood on the altar as a sin offering to make an atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering be made for all of Israel. The temple was now rededicated. And by these sacrifices offered to Jehovah, the king and the leaders of the people laid their hands on the hands of the killed animal, according to verse 23. And we see three spiritual states that they passed through. Confession of sin, atonement for sin, and consecration of themselves to the service of God. Here they openly and honestly admitted their guilt because of their apostasy. And here they were calling on the mercy of God in his, now in his appointed way. Not their appointed way or what they wanted to do. They came and they called upon the mercy of God in God's appointed way of sacrificing the goats, laying their hands on their heads, and through the burnt offerings, a formal and deliberate dedication of themselves was made to God. These three three things are the basic and necessary experiences that repentant and godly men have to go through. Confession of sin, atonement of sin, and consecration of themselves, again, to the service of God. First of all, confession. We have to always confess our sin. And, And sin is any departure from God. Whether it's neglecting His will or it's a rebellious spirit, or putting my will above his will, or not living and acting like him in spirit and in his principles, or of doing or saying something that, that or being something that grieves the Holy Spirit. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our confession of sin will be heard and it will be accepted, not because we use the right words, but because they're simple and honest words and they're from the heart. God wants to hear my confession from the heart. He wants to hear confession and not excuses. Secondly, atonement. God doesn't ask for a sacrifice for sin anymore. Why? Because there's been one perfect sacrifice ordered for sins forever. And he, Christ, is a propitiation or the appeasement for the sins of the whole world. But we do come to ask that one sacrifice, to ask that one sacrifice, Jesus, who was offered for our sins. We come to God to pray that that one propitiation may be accepted on our behalf. We come to lay our hands, uh, lay our hands on the Savior's head, so to speak. Christ, the Lamb of God. And then we ask God for His enduring and abiding mercy to cover our guilt for His sake. And then, by a living faith, we receive that righteousness which is through our faith in Jesus Christ. In this way, our sins are carried away as far as the east is from the west and they're remembered no more and we're brought near to God because and by the blood of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, consecration. The burning up of the whole animal in the burnt offering, when, they, when a burnt offering, when it was put on the altar, it was to be totally consumed till there was nothing but ashes. What that symbolized was the entire consecration of the one who was offering that sacrifice to the Lord. 
It's a picture of us being totally dedicated, totally committed to Jesus Christ. This was the meaning of those offerings that were now being presented. I am all in for the Lord. Hezekiah and his people now offer themselves brand new. They're coming brand new to the Lord. Their sin was now cleansed. It was forgiven. It was, it was accepted. And they've dedicated themselves to God. So to us, uh, consecration is necessary for the godly life. Consecration, separation, sanctification, setting myself aside for God is, an, is a spiritual act that we continually renew. And it should be something that we do where we, where we offer our Lord, our Redeemer, our entire nature, our body, our soul, and our spirit, every fiber of our being, our whole life. And from then on, at all times, in every area, and under all conditions, we are to be a living sacrifice. Verses 25 36. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments, and with harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan, the prophet. For thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then, the he- then Hezekiah commanded them to offer the burnt offering uh, on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, notice the song of the Lord also began with the trumpets and with the instruments of David, king of Israel. So all the assembly worshiped. The singer sang and the trumpeter sounded. All this continued, notice all of this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they had finished offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed and worshiped. And moreover, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. So they sang praises. Notice how they sang it with gladness. And they bowed their heads and they bowed their heads and worshiped. Then Hezekiah answered and said, Now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the Lord. So the assembly brought in sacrifices and thank offerings, and as many as were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. And the number of the burnt offerings which the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, and 200 lambs. All of these were for a burnt offering to the Lord. The consecrated things were 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. But the priests were too few so that they could not skin all the burnt offerings. Therefore, brethren, their brethren, the Levites, helped them until the work was ended, until the other priests had sanctified themselves for the Levites, were more diligent in sanctifying themselves than the priests. Also, the burnt offerings were in abundance with the fat of the peace offerings and with the drink offerings for every burnt offering. So the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. These last verses give us some wonderful ideas about our worship together as a congregation. Notice everybody took part in the worship service. Verse 28 says, notice, all the assembly worshiped. Verse 29 says, The king and all that were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. And you know what? This is when worship is the best. When everybody's taking part in the public worship, when everybody is singing and everybody is raising hands and they are just pouring their hearts out to the Lord. 
Secondly, they did it with gladness, it says. There was a reverent joy, a, 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 a holy joy. Verse 30 says, they sang praises with gladness. We, verse 36 says, then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced. Psalm 100 verse 2 says, serve the Lord with gladness and come before his presence with singing. Why? Because the temple of the Lord was restored to service. And because of what God had done for the people, with the people, and because everything had been done so quickly. This is the natural joy, the natural result of a people that had returned to their Lord. And that had renewed their covenant with God. And he accepted them. And his anger was turned away. And now they might look forward to a time when they would dwell in the brightness of God's countenance. His face would be shining on them and they would live in his loving kindness. Hey, it was a time for the people to be excited. And what is neat about it, they were showing that excitement in their hearts. And that excitement was coming from the heart of the king down to the simplest, humblest citizen of Judah. There's no better time when reverent joy is more beautiful than when we're worshiping in the sanctuary together. Where we're aware that we've been reconciled to God purchased by his blood and God's washed us from our sins in his own blood in Christ who is our savior. And there's where we feel the nearness of our Savior who is in the midst of us. And the service, they experienced the service of giving. Verse 31 says, So the assembly brought in sacrifices and thank offerings, and as many as were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. Willingness. The people gave of their own possessions and they gave it freely. They gave it willingly as an offer to the Lord. And this kind of service, this kind of the service of giving should always be thought of as a basic part of worship. And it should be done as reverently as prayer or praise. And it should be an offering that comes from the heart, willingly, as well as from the pocketbook. Someone once said that if God has our heart, he has our pocketbook. This worship was also very appropriate. What could be more fitting than recognizing the fullness and the greatness of God's gift to us? Shouldn't we then and there offer him our humble grateful response or our grateful gift in his, in response it's acceptable to the lord that we serve but going back to verse 27 of uh, a and b it said first the sacrifice then the song in other words we don't experience the joy and the and the gladness and the, and the excitement until first there's a sacrifice and is the sacrificing of myself, the offering up my sacrifices to the Lord. And once that's done, done, and they're accepted, oh, that's when you experience the joy. 
So it all happens when the sacrifice comes first, then comes the song. Father, we thank you for such a rich chapter, Lord. So rich and so full of of wonderful things to, to glean from, Lord. And God, I pray that, Lord, we would just, Father, that we would take these things to heart tonight. And that, Father, we wouldn't leave them in the pew. But, Father, we'd carry them home. (laughs) We'd carry them through the next day and we'd carry them through church, Lord. I pray that they would change our life. It would change our thinking about worship, our thinking about service, our thinking about consecrating ourselves, sanctifying ourselves to the Lord, changing about what we think, in his sacrifice for us, in shedding his blood for us. Like Hezekiah, may we be aware constantly of what God has done for us. Not just become aware of it on Wednesday night or Sunday morning. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. But through the word of God, his spirit has spoken to your heart. Your need to be right with God. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship right now. And as they do, if God has spoken to your heart and you recognize your need for Christ and you want to receive him as your Lord and Savior, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.